0: know him a little bit as well. So uh, let's uh, transition and jump into the word. We're in John chapter 12 and uh, yes, if you've been around Seacoast for a while, you know that we've been studying through the book of John for a while. We took a little break uh, during the Christmas season and we're back in it and we will be finishing the book of John right around Easter time and uh, so... uh, It will work out perfectly. Jesus will resurrect in the book of John on Easter Sunday, and then we have the week after. So we're getting getting there. So, uh, but we're in John chapter 12. Um, As we look at this text this week, uh, think to your life, have you ever experienced something that when it happened, you saw it, but you're not really sure what you saw until later on you look back and start putting the pieces together to make sense of it? Uh, Maybe an easy example of that would be sometimes we uh, watch a movie like that. You get to the end of the movie and something happens and you say, oh... Now, if I rewatch this movie, the whole thing makes, it, it's different, right? It went, about 20 some years ago, there was this movie called Sixth Sense. Anyone know that movie? Uh, you, if you watch it the first time and no one spoiled it for you, that was one of those that if someone spoiled it, you're like, seriously, why am I even going to watch this? But you get to the end and you think, are you kidding me? And you have to rewatch the whole thing and you go, now it makes sense. In fact, it's probably not any good if you watch it knowing what happened. I don't know or how it ends, but sometimes that happens that way. Um, I was reading this week about um, when mankind was trying to learn to fly. Now, not fly, you know, fly with aircraft and vehicles. And uh, it started really with hot air balloons in uh, the 1700s. And hot air balloons in France, they got pretty good at it. Um, In fact, the first people who did it were burning a mixture of wool and straw, and it filled up the hot air balloons. And they thought they were creating a new kind of gas that was able to fill up the, the balloons, they didn't know it was just hot air, but nonetheless, uh, they created this system with a hot air balloon, and the first flight took place in Paris, and there was like a, a rooster, a, a sheep, and a chicken or something were the first to ever fly, so isn't that nice to know? That's, if you're ever on Jeopardy, you're welcome. So... Um, but then, a couple months later, two men were the first humans to actually ever fly in a vehicle. And they went up in this hot air balloon in Paris. It took off and it got up to six thousand feet. And the currents took it a little more than they thought, and they couldn't they knew how to control it, but they didn't know how they didn't want to come down in the city. So they stayed afloat longer than they meant to, and went about six miles across Paris. And at the time that wasn't they were now outside of the city. And they came down in a a village filled with peasants and farm workers who knew nothing of experiment of flight. So think of you now, you have this giant, brightly colored object descending down upon you in uh, a, a few hundred years ago. And uh, the rumor is, or the legend is, that the, the men who were in the hot air balloon had bottles of champagne to celebrate, but as they landed, they had to give them to the villagers so they weren't lynched as some demons coming down out of the sky. <laughs> Later on, of course, they realized what they had seen, but to see something you've never even imagine before up here. It would be difficult. When we read this in John chapter 12, we're going to see something happen in John chapter 12 that on the surface now, we have the experience of years to look back and say, oh, now we know why this makes sense to us. But upon the original hearers, we are going to see today that they saw what they thought they understood, but we realize they didn't fully understand what was happening until later on. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 16, John is writing and he says this, these things happened, but the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these these things and what was written of him, and they had done these things for him. So, when they first saw this event that happens that we'll look at today, they didn't quite fully grasp it until later on when Jesus was glorified. And I'll talk about what that means. And then they said, oh, that's what happened there. Now, before we dive into the text and look at what happened, let me just take a moment to double, double-click on the word glorified. Glorified is kind of a churchy word, right? And so let's understand it. It comes from the word glory, Thank you for that too. So uh, glory, but it, glory means weight or heaviness. If so we look at in Hebrew, and so it's to give weight or the weight of something. So the glory of God is his weight, meaning the fullness of his character and who he is. The fullness of his character. So when you say uh, God's glory is all of who he is. Now, then we use it as a term of worship to glorify God, is us to give thanks or praise for who he is, his characters, his attributes. But there's another way we glorify God, is we glorify God by reflecting his character and attributes, by actually being an image of who he is. Paul writes in uh, Corinthians, he tells us that we are growing in ever-increasing glory, meaning more and more in the likeness and image of God in his character, we're being transformed as followers of his. So there's that use of the term. Now here, John uses the word glory or glorify uh, more than any other New Testament author. In fact, uh, over 20% of the uses of glory in the New Testament are in the book of John. Uh, He uses it quite often, and here he says, Notice what he said was that they didn't understand these things until after Jesus was glorified. So in this case, that was after he was crucified but then resurrected that the fullness of his character was on display. So when Jesus was glorified, it means the fullness of his character is on display, so that you're looking at him and say, he's not just a nice teacher, he's not just a guru, he's not a religious person, but he claimed to be God, and when he rose again, he was fully glorified, the crowd said, oh, that's who you are. You really are who you said you were. If he stays in the grave, he's not glorified, he's just a nice person. So, John's writing and says some of the things that Jesus did, some of the things that happened, we didn't get it until his full character was put on display through his death and resurrection. So with that context, let's look now at what happened Notice the scripture reading we had today. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a day that we call Palm Sunday. That's when we celebrate it. It's often the triumphant entry is often called. And it was the week uh, leading up to Passover. Passover was a feast of the Jews. And it's a, it's a feast of one of their three pilgrimage feasts. So it's one that they were, the men were required, if able, to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And to sacrifice a pure and spotless lamb. Um, And we know actually by first century, some uh, historical accounts would say that at one Passover, they sacrificed over 200,000 lambs. So think of what that would be like, but also think of how many people that represents. That's not one per person. Those are usually one per family. So think of in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, the population during Passover was very large compared to normal. So the crowds are there, and they're remembering Passover. Now, Passover was a feast that remembers their deliverance out of Egypt. Israel was slave, enslaved in Egypt, and when they were delivered by God out of their slavery in Egypt, that they celebrated Passover. And so that became a remembrance of that, a festival of freedom. Now, it also became a festival to think of a future freedom when God would send his anointed one, the Messiah, to once and for all come and deliver Israel to ultimate freedom. That's why the feast has all the symbolism that we're going to see in the coming weeks that points to a Messiah and and again when they're experiencing it they didn't understand the fullness of what Jesus the symbolism until later. But even to this day as Jews celebrate Passover one of the common you end it with saying next year in Jerusalem and it's a hope, it's a messianic hopeful belief that hopefully this year the Messiah will come and he'll establish his kingdom on earth and we'll all be in Jerusalem celebrating it next year. So that's kind of the thinking around Passover. It's, it's looking at the past but longing for future deliverance by God. So with that context now, through the book of John, we have seen that people are starting to ask and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're saying maybe he is the one we've been waiting for. And if he's the one we've been waiting for, and now we're celebrating Messiah, or, or sorry, Passover, could it be that this year is the year? Now, part of uh, Passover is you would sing a group of psalms called the Hallel psalms, or starting in Psalm 113 through 118. We talked about this a couple months ago. For those of you who are regulars here and, and might remember that during the Feast of Sukkot or the Tabernacles, they also sing those same ones. But they sing them during Passover, so the psalms would be on their mind. Now, in Psalm 118, verse 25, it says this, Please, O Lord, save us, or Hosanna, the the Hebrew word, Hosanna, save us. Please, O Lord, send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's one of the Psalms that you would sing. And now we see in this story, they're singing it about Jesus. Because it's already on their mind, and they're thinking, you're the one. Save us, Jesus. What an amazing thing. But then Jesus does this very profound, super symbolic, deep thing. As he gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem. Now, when we think of donkeys in our context, that's not like, you know, in the words of Shrek, it's not a noble steed, right? (laughs) Like, we don't think of donkey as like, well, that's a good thing for the Messiah to ride in on. But actually, in ancient world, donkey could be a noble beast. And so, uh, and it was actually a king would ride a donkey when that king was coming in peace, to come to make a treaty. If a king would come into your city on a horse, it meant war. On a donkey, it meant peace. So here is now Jesus getting on a donkey and entering Jerusalem. Now, that in and of itself is pretty cool, but even more significant is there was a prophecy about this in Zechariah chapter nine verse nine. In Zechariah chapter nine verse nine, four hundred and fifty or so years before Jesus, maybe five hundred years before Jesus came, this was written about the coming Messiah. It said, "Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation. There's that word again. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt." the foal of a donkey. So Jesus would well know this prophecy. The crowds would know this prophecy. And so as Jesus gets on the donkey and enters into Jerusalem, most would start to connect the dots and say he is proclaiming he is the fulfillment of what we're waiting for. Now I want you to see this. Notice who is coming into Jerusalem according to Zechariah. Who are they waiting for? The The king. I think someone said that. If you said something else, you get credit for getting it anyway. The king is coming. So Jesus, by getting on this donkey, was saying, I'm your king. And I'm entering in to Jerusalem. So there's this profound moment Then again, they didn't fully get it at the time. We already looked at that. At the time, they were like, this is pretty cool. This seems connected. But until he was resurrected, they didn't say, oh, that was so much deeper than we thought. But we have the advantage now of looking back. So here's the thing. For the rest of our study in the book of John, we're looking at this idea of Jesus bringing his kingdom that he is now saying here in John 12 is beginning. We, read, we hear him say it throughout the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We hear him in the other gospels saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He is telling us there is a new kingdom. There is a kingdom that is is now here and so what we're going to look at the rest of the study is what kind of kingdom is this and we're calling it the upside down kingdom because in God's kingdom what you would expect is not always what you get but to establish that what I want to look at is what makes a kingdom And there's an author, a professor named Scott McKnight, who did some research. He was asking this question about kingdom and looked at all of the passages to the Old Testament and New Testament to address in Scripture, when we hear kingdom and king, what is that talking about? What are the things that are necessary for a kingdom? So that's what I want to do today. We're going to look at four aspects that make a kingdom, and how does that apply to us? Ready for it? So the first one is this. What makes a kingdom? You might guess this first one. You need a king. (laughs) It's hard to have a kingdom without a king; it won't last long. But so every kingdom has to have a king, according to Scripture. So Jesus is saying, "I am that king of my kingdom." Now I wonder how many of us we take that we just say, "Like yeah, Jesus is king," and we stop there. But do we stop and actually consider what does it mean to have a king? Now, in this case, we're not talking about a bad king. We're talking about a good king, a benevolent king, a king who, uh, and this is God, so it's a king that deserves our respect, our submission, our honor it's something that contextually we don't always get in our culture. We live in a democracy. Our leaders change often. Sometimes we have leaders we don't uh, like as much as others, and it changes from time to time. And so we don't have this same concept of knowing what it means to honor, respect, and follow the king. Although, I will say, side note, whether we love the policies of our leaders or not, we should, publicly as Christians, we should have a public, respectful discord with our leaders. I believe that God asks us to have decorum and respect whether people do that or not. And there's a way to have differences of opinions but still say we respect you because God put you in authority. That's actually biblical, so we can do that off the soapbox back on. So we don't always understand what it means to have a king, but I want you to think for a minute. If we have a good king, We want to know that king. We want to know it's important to the king. We want to honor the king. We want to submit to the king. A few years ago, I was um, on our campus. It was during the week, and um, someone had come and was sitting outside, and so we struck up a conversation. Through the conversation, he kind of shared some of the things that he was struggling with and wrestling with and how life is struggling to find purpose and meaning and all of these things. And eventually, we got to talk about Jesus. We talked about faith and said, well, you know where I think you can find hope and purpose for your life. It's in Jesus. And not only that, you can find forgiveness to set you free from your past and let you live without guilt and shame and, and set you on a new course. And we got to a point where I said, would you like to receive Jesus and pray? And he said, yes. We thought, that's amazing. So we started praying and we prayed. And got to the point, Lord, would you forgive me for the sin, my sins, all those things? Then I said, and then follow me with this prayer and say, Lord, now I'm, or Jesus, now I make you Lord of my life. And He stopped. He stopped me, and He said, You know what? I'm not ready for that. And I actually really appreciated His honesty. It was heartbreaking, but at one side, I loved that He didn't want to just say it and not mean it. See, he was okay with Jesus as Savior. He was okay at Jesus loving him. He was okay with all of that. But he wasn't okay with Jesus as Lord. I wonder how many of us in our own lives that we have no problem having a Savior. We have no problem having someone love us and call us his child. But when it comes to having Jesus as Lord, that's a difficult point. Are we willing to submit to our Lord, to our King Jesus? Live our lives under his lordship? It's a question. So every kingdom has a king. So Jesus is saying, I will be your king. So then every kingdom needs this. The second thing is this. You need a people. (laughs) So you have to have a king and then you also have people. If you don't have people, it's not a very big kingdom. Some of you are king of your house, but you live alone. And it's just you. And if you have a dog, you're not king of your house. (laughs) Or a pet. You serve them, whether you think it or not, right? So... Yeah, so a king needs a kingdom needs people. And so people are how we are, are are part of every kingdom. Look at what happens here in this passage. I love this. Right after Jesus enters in, right after he makes this amazing statement through riding on the donkey, saying, I am your king who's coming to you. Now, verse 20 says this. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship the feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, I love that in here, the way John has us looking at the passages, right after Jesus says there's a kingdom, he gives us this hint that his kingdom is going to be open to all people. The very next people who are invited in are the Greeks. See, throughout Scripture, God began by choosing a people called the nation of Israel to be his people to represent his ways. As Jesus came, he said, this family now is open to all who will follow me. And so we're now grafted into this family of God. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male, female, we've told, we're told in scripture that we're all invited. Nothing is gonna separate us from being invited into this kingdom. So it's a people, but it's all people are invited to be a part of of the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, God also was like this in the Old Testament. He didn't reject people. Anyone who wanted to follow him and submit to Yahweh and say, You will be my God, I will be your people, he invited them in. A great example is this person named Rahab in the book of Joshua. She was not a, uh, not an Isra- or a Jew, but she was grafted into the family. She said, I will follow your God and be a part of you. In fact, she's in the, linea- the genealogy of Jesus. So God of the Bible has never changed. He's always had a heart for all people. Let's make sure we don't think there's an Old Testament mean God and there's a New Testament nice God. No, he's always been this everlasting, loving God for all people. He has a specific plan of how things worked in the Old Testament that's been expanded in the new. And so the kingdom now, the people is open to all of us. And here's something that's important for us to know about this kingdom. In the kingdom of Jesus What qualifies you to fit in is what Jesus did, not what you do. It's so upside down. It's so backwards. There's no like, hey, if you just do these things, then you fit in with the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there's nothing that says, hey, you got to get your act together so that now you're qualified to be invited to be a part of this kingdom. It's, no, Jesus went to the cross for you and for me and invited us. He qualified us through his works. So you now are qualified and invited to be a part of this kingdom. It's backwards, it's upside down, it's Jesus' kingdom. So we have a king, we have a people. Now here's the next thing every kingdom has to have. And it has to have a law or a way of being. It has to be, have a rule for how we live and govern. So every kingdom has to have, this is how we exist within the kingdom, and it's usually the will of the king that determines what that looks like. So let's look back in our text. At the end of, uh, or sorry, in verse 23, so some of the Greeks came to Jesus, and Jesus answered them and said this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now before we go further, I I, want to just let you see something about what he just said. Because Jesus just said uh, this, he was referring to another Old Testament book called the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Jesus said, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be revealed. You'll see the fullness of who he is. And this is a pretty interesting thing here because in Daniel chapter 7, it's a a dream, a vision about four kingdoms. An Assyrian kingdom, uh, the Persian kingdom, the Greeks, and then the Romans. They each had their time of world dominance. And in the vision, in chapter 7, you have it in verse 13, it says this. Daniel kept looking and seeing the visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given, get this, dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one in which will not be destroyed." So in Daniel chapter 7, there's this vision about after the Roman Empire, there'll be one who's sent from God, the Son of Man, who is going to establish this kingdom that will last forever, and it will never pass away. Now, if you know that passage as as a Jew in first century, you're longing for that, you're feeling the oppression of the Romans, and you're seeing Jesus proclaimed to be king, and then say, now the Son of Man, the time has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, you're going, wait, 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 Son of Man, Daniel, kingdoms now, yes. That means the Romans are about to be done. The Messiah is here, and this is, I can't wait. Pick up your swords, we're going to win. But we continue on in verse 24. Jesus then says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if that grain of wheat falls to earth and di- or but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of what's about to happen with him. And then he turns it to those who follow him. So the one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it. To eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice what we see here in the rule of of God, in the kingdom of God. What is his government? What is his rule? What is his will? Again, it's this upside down the way of Jesus. To gain, we must give up. To find your life, you must lose it. To be honored, you become a servant. All of the things that you would expect seemed upside down. We can look at the teachings of Jesus through Matthew chapter five through seven and this, what's called the Sermon on the Mount gives us all kinds of in-depth teaching about in this kingdom of God, how things are different. If someone uh, curses you, we bless them. If someone strikes you, you turn the other cheek. If someone uh, forces you to take something a mile, you go another mile. In the kingdom of God, it's all upside down. So Jesus is saying, I have a kingdom, I have a will, and my will is not what you would expect. See, the crowds were expecting, let's overthrow Rome, let's go, let's do it now. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to die actually for you. And later on, which we don't have time to get into, but you can read uh, later uh, of this passage, they say, wait, we thought the Christ was going to be here forever. How can you die? It doesn't make sense. But Jesus says, yeah, because in my kingdom, we're going to gain by giving up. And of course, the resurrection makes it all possible. He didn't remain in his tomb in that grave. But in the kingdom of God, things are backwards. And that, my friends, is the hardest part about the kingdom of God I think having Jesus as king and saying, I submit to you, I can do that most of the time. <laughs> Being his people, I'm in. Sounds good. Open to all people, I'm in. Living by the Jesus way, most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes that's a really hard way. I remember when I uh, first started working in a church and, um, the first pastors I ever worked for said, Ryan, if you, if you do this long enough in leadership, you're eventually going to have people attack you. You're eventually going to have things said about you. It's just going to happen. And I thought, there's no way. I'm a super youth pastor. Like, like, no one will ever come against me. Are you kidding? But there's this reality about leadership that no matter what we lead, whether it's a church or an organization or a home or anything, there'll be times you're questioned. And there'll be times you might even be attacked. And there's times someone might do something that is heartful, heart- hurtful and harmful to you. There are times people are going to want it to, even in the Christian world, it happens. And I, when he told me that, I thought, there's no way. But through, now I've been working in churches in various roles, either part-time or full-time, for 30 years now. I, I started when I was six. And, and in all that time, I've realized that he was right. There are times when people will misunderstand you. Sometimes they understand you fully, very well, but they just don't like you. (laughs) And they might say things. They might try to hurt you. They might do all that. And when those things happen, I have a choice. The choice I have is the Jesus way or the way of the world. Now, the way of the world is more fun (laughs) because it's whatever I think feels best in that moment. And the way of the world sometimes leads to gossip and slander, and the way of the world might lead to payback, evil for evil, and all of those things. But the way of Jesus is a way of grace. It's a way of forgiveness. It's a way to say, even if you've harmed me, I'm not going to return that. I'm going to bear up under that and walk in the ways that Jesus has invited me to walk. And I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to bless when I'm cursed. And that's not always easy, and I don't always succeed at it. But that's the way of Jesus. That's his kingdom. How is it for you? Are you willing to walk the Jesus way in his kingdom? Are you willing to give up those things that I need to be right, I need to win, I need to come out on top? Or can you say, I will serve and humbly love others even when they don't deserve it? I was, uh, this week, uh, looking at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote some of the great, uh, kind of, I would say, Christian manuscripts. One is The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, to save time, Bonhoeffer's life, amazing. He ended up getting killed in, uh, by the Nazis in Nazi Germany, but he was a pastor in Germany that uh, was standing up against anti-Semitism and then standing up against Hitler, and eventually he was killed for that. But in that, he, one of the last things he wrote is he wrote a letter to a, a former student of his, and he was talking about this process of learning the cost of living the Jesus ways. And he said this, I have it on the screen for you. He says, I discovered later on, and I'm still discovering right out to this moment, that's only by living completely in this world that we learn to have faith. And what he meant by that, he means living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures, In doing so, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. That is, I think, faith. And what he was talking about is it wasn't to withdraw from the hardships. It wasn't to ignore those times when you have to live the Jesus way. It wasn't to say, wait, I'm going to compartmentalize, but to wholeheartedly throw himself into every moment and experience it and say, I am doing this in the arms of God. He went on to talk about what it meant to share in the sufferings of the world. And that is where faith is found. It's not by compartmentalizing and saying, well, this person deserves it, or I'm not with my Christian friends right now. The kingdom of Jesus is in all of the duties of life, up and down, all of them. So, last thing. Kingdom, you need a king, you need people, you need a will or a way of being, and then finally you need this, a land. Every kingdom has a place. Uh, We have, that's why in the Old Testament, you see that it was the nation of Israel. As it expands, Jesus says something profound. He says, go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us that now the kingdom of God is meant to be where you are. As my people, It is to the ends of the earth. It's not in one location. It's not in church buildings on Sunday morning. It's not during your life group time. The kingdom of God, the land of Jesus' kingdom, is where his people are. It's a global kingdom. That's why here at Seacoast we use the phrase, we say this, that we are a movement of people blessing the neighborhoods in which we live, work, and play. We believe that the kingdom of God, the land that his kingdom belongs in, is where we are. We want to make a difference everywhere we are. We want to make a difference in our schools. We want to make a difference in our workplaces. Students, it's one of the most difficult things to bring the kingdom of God to a public school campus because you're kind of weird when you do that compared to everyone else, right? If you bring the ways of Jesus in, if you are not the gossipers and the fighters and you're the ones who care for the lowly, you're not making fun of the the weak, you're actually leaning in and caring for them and loving them. That's really hard to do. But when you do that, you put little outposts of God's kingdom in your school and it's awesome. We have that in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Are you outposts of God's kingdom? That's, God's, that's what it means to be in this upside down kingdom of Jesus. So many of you model this well. I'm so encouraged to see how many of you model this kingdom living as you bring light and hope in the places you go. One question that I have for us is how do we do that? How do we grow in the kingdom of God? How do we train our minds to be about the kingdom? Because life gets in the way, doesn't it? And one of the things that I've been challenged with this year, and especially during sabbatical and since then, is what does it mean to always abide in Christ? What does it mean to have my life just fully connected with Jesus? We're going to look at that passage in a few weeks where he talks about abiding in him. But just really being aware that we are in the presence of our king. And there's this helpful little book called the Present, Practicing the Presence of God by a guy named Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence said this once "What it talks about, we want to have ourselves always just thinking of the, of the presence of God in us. He says this, let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, look at this, the more we will desire to know him. As, our love, increase, as love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We learn to love him Equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. So there's this weird paradox that the more we know, want to know or know God, the more we'll want to know Him, and the more we know Him, the more we begin to love Him. And how do we get to know Him more? But by diving into his word, by understanding who he is, by practicing it, living it out in the context of community with one another, that we start to see, oh, this is how it works. We get to know the heart of our God, which makes us want to know the heart of our God more, which makes us fall more in love with him and be aware that he is present with us. So we want to challenge you this year. Through scripture, dive into scripture. We invite you to participate, to read it regularly. We have our thing we call daily encounters. We'll send them out to you five days a week via email. You can sign up for it on the connect card. We're reading through the whole Bible over the next two years. If you start now, you're only one week behind, which is only about five chapters a week. You can do it. It's a way that we get to know the the counsel of God. We get to know who he is context or do it in the context of community in a group get to know other people we invite you to join a group rooted is coming up the end of this month it helps us to shape one another and the more we get to know God the more our love for him will expand it won't doesn't work opposite if you ignore him and think I don't know I don't feel close to God you're going to have dry seasons but the answer to dry seasons is not to ignore him it's to lean in to seek his heart We're going to end our time here in a time of communion, which we think is a great way to begin our year together. And communion is all about remembering the presence of Jesus. It's remembering that he is present with us now, and that he was present in the scriptures, that this is a real thing that happened. So we're going to go to the tables and take communion, and we'll take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, he lived a real life, died a real death, and had a real resurrection. We take that bread, we're remembering it's a symbol of his presence, that it really happened. We take the cup of the, of the juice. For us, it reminds us of the blood that he shed. The blood that he shed, what he said, it was a covenant in his blood, a promise that he makes to us. And if God makes a promise, guess what can't break it? Anything. We can't break what God, his promise to us. So our sinfulness, our failures, our doubts, none of that is strong enough to break the covenant he made with you and with me. So when we go, we're gonna go to the tables. We're gonna invite you to take it. Maybe you wanna take it as a family, maybe as a couple, maybe alone. It's totally however you want. Go to the tables. You can take the elements. If you want to come back to your seat, feel free. If you wanna take them somewhere around the room, pray together before. It's free to however you wanna do it. We have a couple songs. And when we do that, let's remember God's real presence is with us, that he is here, that his kingdom is now, and that he's inviting us in to this upside-down kingdom. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. Your ways are better. And we thank you that, Lord, you love us through the ups and downs of our life, and you are still king. So now as we go to the table of communion to remember that you lived, that you were, uh, died and rose again, and that there's a promise in your blood that nothing could break what you've done for us, offering us forgiveness and sonship and daughtership, that we're now in your kingdom. God, we thank you for that. We pray that we would meet you in this moment. We thank you for your presence with us today. In your name, amen. So at your own pace, go take communion. We have a couple songs today.